comes up and uh, it says this, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. The preacher of preachers said that, uh, a man named Charles Hadley Spurgeon, who's a local man to here, lived just up on Nightingale Lane, on the way up to Clapham actually. And he preached that, um, and said it a little ditty, in the middle of one of his sermons on January 1st, 1885. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him alone, in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Now you've just heard that parable. Which son do you think that little statement of Spurgeon's refers to the most? In, in a sense, who's doing the deadly doing? This parable is sometimes known, isn't it, as the prodigal son. Uh, and prodigal sim- simply means someone who is extravagant, uh, reckless with their wealth. But prodigal is simply an adjective. It could describe anything, like you could have a prodigal bowl of ice cream, as I intend to later on. Um, <laughs> but the prodigal is, is one who squanders and comes crawling back to the father in the story that we've just heard read. Uh, and he's described, if you'll notice in the top of the heading of the, the paragraph you've, you've seen, he just describes the lost son. But that is a great mistake, I think, and many think today, when reading this parable, because actually both sons are lost. The parable is a story of comparison, and the sons represent, they could represent you here. And Jesus is showing us, through these, these two sons, that Well, pretty much everyone, every religion, every worldview, every philosophy that you know and see in the world around you, devised by man, trying to gain some kind of relationship or connection with God. Jesus is simply saying to through these two sons, they're all wrong. They're all wrong. Now this parable, that is what Jesus is saying in these words of this parable, blows, if you like, religion apart. Any way that we think that we can get to God on our own, Jesus is going to say no. But you see, that doesn't include the Christian faith. Interestingly, historically, I was reading about this this week. Did you know when Jesus died on the cross and rose rose again and then ascended to heaven, and the, uh, the early church sprang up in the ancient world, the Christian faith was not known or understood as a religion. It, it was in a whole new category of its own. The Romans actually described it within all the historical annals as as an irreligion. And they branded Christians as atheists because they wouldn't bow down to Caesar's rule. But Christianity, within those early few hundred years, was utterly distinct from all other worldviews, philosophies and religions. It was stood in its own category. And that is what Jesus is about to blow our minds with right now. So let's turn to the story, just to to run through the details. You know them, I'm sure, very, very well. There's two sons, there's a lost younger son, there's a lost older son. And it's like two parts of a a, a story, a play, or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's two-parter, isn't it? So let's go to the younger son. He approaches his father, he asks for a portion of the estate, doesn't it? You see that there? And that actually would have been one-third of the estate, because within the law of the the time, the the older son always got two-thirds of the estate. He was asked for the greater portion, a double portion. But it, it is what he actually asked, which is the shock of the story. And the original hearers of this story, as, as they were listening, their chins would have hit the ground at the moment that the, the younger son uh, asked the question. 
See, to ask the inheritance of your father, and I know there's a father here, I can imagine if his son asked this, you know, it, was, it would just be, oh, you're simply wishing your dad dead. The younger, saying, the younger son is actually saying here, I want your stuff, dad, but I don't want you. He understood his relationship with his father was simply a means to what he could get and what he wanted. And you get halfway through verse 12 and you, the original hearers of the parable, they, they'd be thinking and expecting just one thing at this point. That the, the father would get hold of the younger son and grab him by the earlobe and boot him out of the house. And probably be fairly violent given the culture of the time. Uh, either that or there'll be some strong verbal correction from the father here. Followed by definitely within that culture expulsion from that family home. But does his father do that? Look at halfway through verse 12. He divided his property. That word property is actually, in the original, our word biology comes from it. Essentially, he's dividing himself, the dad. That's what it means. He divided himself in half, or in in two different portions. You see, because life and property in those days was considered so integral to each other. You know, if, if you were to lose your land, your property, you were to lose essentially your life, your means of survival, your credibility, your standing in the community. But the father is willing and he endures the agony of, well, it's, it's a rejected love, isn't it? So verse 13, look at it, the son goes off and is prodigal. Not necessarily with ice cream, but he squanders his wealth, we see, in wild living, which could enjoy Ben and Jerry's in that, I suppose. But he didn't do too well, did he? It sounds like a lot of those people, and you may be one, who just come to London and live the life. You know what I mean by that? You spend all you, all you have and all you, all you earn, but what do you have to show for it? There's a famine, we see in the story, as you follow it through, he gets a rubbish, jo- rubbish job because he spent all his money, and it's not enough. And he's starving, come verse 17. And there's that wonderful little turn in the story there, isn't there, of the youngest son. He came to his senses. He probably, for the first time in his life, he thought beyond the immediate pleasure that he could grab in the moment, that secular kind of thinking. And it's probably for the first time in his life he's begun to think of anyone but himself. Verse 18, he thinks of his life with reference now to his father and his heavenly father. Verse 19, he plans to go home to become what we see as there. He sees a hired man, our translation says. What's he trying to do there? In some ways he's trying to find a way to make up with his dad. I'll become a hired man. He's not, you see, the distinction there is he's not trying to come back as a slave. He wants to make that distinction here. He comes back as a a hired man, essentially, to put it in terms that we might say, an apprentice. He's looking to learn a trade in order to earn a good amount of money in order to pay his dad back. In his mind, as he thinks it through in, in verse 19, he thinks, I can't be a son again. That's just out of the question, given what I've done. 
But I can be an apprentice, a hired man, a hired worker. And that's his plan to make up all, for all the disgrace and the mess of his boy's life. So verse 20, he got up and went to his father. This is amazing, isn't it? Verse 20, cast your eyes down. But while he was still a long way off, he saw, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Now don't miss this, guys. His father runs. That might sound just a little bit, yeah, whatever. But his father runs. Middle Eastern men, patriarchs as they were known. Yeah, men of the manor house 150 years ago in this country. They don't run. They walk with dignity. Yeah, children run. That's fine. And even in this society, women ran. That was seemed appropriate. Men, landowners, wealthy men, never ran. Men, he would have to apparently pull up his robe and show a bit of ankle. And that was just not the done thing, okay? They don't run. But here, there's something different here, isn't there? He showed a lack of control in a sense. He lets his emotions take him over. There's freedom there, isn't there? He runs, he hugs, he kisses. And that does not happen in this culture. Verse 21, the son tries to humble himself before the father and let, his know, let the father know his plan to kind of pay back what he owes, even though that is an utterly ridiculous thing to do. He's not going to be able to pay it off in the whole of his life. But verse 22, the father just doesn't want to know, does he? Get the best robe, he says. Who's got the best robe? Well, the father has. So get my best robe and put it on the son. The father isn't going to wait for the son to kind of sort out the debt um, that he has. He's not going to wait uh, for the son to clean himself up because given what he's gone through, he's going to be pretty messy and pretty smelly, isn't he? No, he, he just wants to give him the robe. He covers the sins and the smelly consequences of this son's sins. The betrayal and the mess of the prodigal's life are just simply enveloped in this robe. The robe covers and then you get the ring of status to show he's a son. You get the sandals which distinguish him from a slave. There's something going on here. It's bigger, isn't it? It's better. Verse 23, the fattened calf comes along. He's brought out and that seems to be a massive issue, doesn't it, for the older son? Do you notice that there? Now, meat was a delicacy at any time within that culture. Very few people had meat for meals. I mean, if you had a goat, yeah, that was pretty good. That came out on birthdays and stuff like that. But the fattened calf, that was like an uber treat of the time. But do you see the response of the older son? Essentially, he's going kind of, how dare you spend my wealth on this undeserving kind of toe rag who spent all of yours. Do you see how the younger and the older son are quite similar in this? They both look to their father and they think they have every sort of right to control what they think is going to be theirs. That is his wealth. You see how annoyed the older son is in verse 29 as he insults his father. You can see it kind of boiling up in him. It was brilliant how Claire read it actually. Went, she went, look! With the exclamation mark there. Essentially, you, you can translate it's like saying to your dad, Oi, you! 
It's kind of showing a, a lack of respect. He's, he's publicly insulting his father in two ways when we get to the end of the story. One, because he won't go into this wonderful feast that he's laid on. But two, because he's just like not referring to him as his father. He's saying, look, boy. Verse 31, the father responds. And again, we expect him to come out of this feast. And we expect him to get hold of the older son this time by the earlobe and give him a good whacking. Because that's what all the hearers were expecting. It was a violent culture. Or at least a good talking down. But look how the father responds in verse 31. Is he like the son? Oi! No, he says, my son. The father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. It's tender, isn't it? There's kind of a grace to it. There's a compassion. How does the story end? The lovely thing is we just don't know, do we? We haven't a clue how the story ends. And I guess that is the frustrating brilliance of this parable. The conclusion of the parable is not focused where we in our hearts and our minds want to focus the parable. That is on the two sons and what happens to both of them. The focus of the parable is on the response of the father. And we see what happens there, don't we? Because that is primary. We've gone the whole way through it now, pretty much. Shall we stop? Yeah, maybe. No, let's go on. What can we learn from this? This frustrating, brilliant, contemporary, I think it's really contemporary, scene that Jesus is painting for us all. Three things, I put them on your sheets and we're going to run through it very quickly. Jesus tells us about God here, he tells us about our sin, and he tells us about our salvation. Now this book points out those things and more, so please do turn to that book, five pounds, grab it at the end. Firstly then, Jesus tells us about God. Now, it is Father's Day, and I don't want to kind of overlook that and whatever, even if it is an invention of Clinton cards, which have now gone down, haven't they, in the recent recession. So there we go. That's what happens to you. But Jesus, in, in every occasion on the New Testament, addresses his God as Father, except on one occasion. Now, the language and the concept of fatherhood... It was integral to Jesus' relationship with his father. Hence all the times that he addressed his father as father. But it was also integral that the fatherhood relationship was integral to this society in which Jesus speaks to here. The Middle Eastern father of the first century, he was nothing as we see of the father in this parable. To be a father in in that society basically meant this extreme stern rule of the household it was kind of discipline beyond anything else maybe even cruelty at times historians will tell us to show that the father was to be feared it's kind of von trapp gone like way down the spectrum the father in this parable you see is unlike any father that would have been seen at that time in that culture The father who longs for you and loves you in a way that is willing to step outside of those cultural norms. A father that runs. A father that kisses his son. A father that honours and protects his children. Who speaks with compassion and speaks with gentleness. That doesn't undermine his authority and his ability to rule. And his status within the culture, but rather that demonstrates that he is secure in himself and willing to give himself fully 
to love and serve his children. Now, if you're a dad here, just a moment for the dads. I guess you will feel the pressure just like I do. Some of us will have a tendency toward the first century father. That is to be like Mr. Von Trapp with his whistle and, you know, a bit kind of... We, we err on the side of discipline and rule before compassion and grace. But some of us will have a tendency toward as many, let's call them the Southwest London father. You know what I'm talking about if you're a father. That is who hardly ever sees his children and to, to kind of make up for the guilt of that. When they do see them, they'll spoil them rotten and not exercise much discipline within the house, which actually makes it more difficult for the wife the whole way through the week. One extreme leads to the child being embittered and one it leads to the child being unruly. But this parable, that's a little excursus aside, but this parable is, is much more about the fatherhood of God, though that is a sec- good and appropriate secondary application. Jesus here is speaking far more to us about God, our Heavenly Father, as the, the wonderful example of fatherhood that we should all aim to emulate. The one who has all authority yet speaks and acts with this lovely grace and gentleness and overwhelming care that we see of the Father in this story. Secondly, Jesus tells us about our sin. Now we look at the first one, don't we, and we see sin. It's obvious, isn't it? You kind of look at it and go, oh yeah, that's sin. That's proper sin. That's good, you know, really bad, bad, bad sin. We, we, we understand that. He squanders his money on wild living, doesn't he? And we don't know the specifics, but we can all guess, can't we? Or we can translate what those specifics will be in our lives. Certainly the older brother thinks he knows, doesn't he? Look at verse 30, and you can see what he thinks the money's been spent on. But in his wild living, he insults the father, doesn't he? Despite his, all his father has done, he's despising his father. Every time he's getting the credit card out and spending that inheritance. That is sin, isn't it? We all know it. That's terrible. Boo, we all want to say, when we look at the younger son. And you can imagine the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are listening into this parable, and you can see that back in chapter 15, verse 2. Cast your eyes back. They're the audience. You can imagine them, when they get to the word wild living, of them shaking their heads and doing some good tutting at that point. Oh, how terrible. That's awful. But you get to the end of the parable, and you see that one son has been very, very bad. We understand that as the younger one. But one son has also been very, very good. And we understand that as the older one. But the amazing thing about this parable is they're both alienated from the father. But you get to the end of the parable and you see, wow, something has changed. You see, both both at the beginning are wanting things from their father, but they didn't want their father himself, did they? They used the father to get what they really wanted and what they loved, and that is wealth and status and privilege and all all those kind of things. Now they got to that situation in different ways. One did it by being very, very good. One did it by being very, very bad. But both were lost. But the shock to those gathering around Jesus, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, all of those people, was they come at the, as, they, as they hear this story kind of reach its conclusion, the shock is that the bad son, the one who's done all the terrible things, he is the one who is saved. And the good son, the one who's done all these things, being loyal and so on, He's the lost one. 
And notice how he is lost. That is the older son. The good son. It is not in spite of his goodness, as Keller points out in his book. It's because of his goodness. It's not in spite of his goodness. It's because of his goodness. Let me put that out. See, such is this stubborn heart. He's, he's not willing to go into the feast that his father has prepared for his younger son who's welcome home. You see, it's actually his goodness. It's his self-righteousness that is preventing him from being with his father. He can't bear the thought that this younger son has been treated with such grace. He thinks such privilege needs to be earned, and he thinks he's earned it. Look at it when he goes at the end. He expects a goat for his labour and loyalty. He didn't even give me a goat, he says. But he expects too little because his father's got a fattened calf. If he'd only humble himself and realise that he can't earn it. Look back at verse 1 and 2 of this chapter. You'll see there's two groups in this audience. Do you see verse 1? The first group are the tax collectors and sinners. And like the younger son, you want to go boo and hiss. They're the really bad folk. The really bad sinners. But then you get the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord in verse 2. And they're like the really good people of society. They're the wonderfully charming. They're really upright and noble. And Jesus is showing these two groups of people through these sons that both are lost in their sin. Yeah, one in that hot rebellious sin that you see at the beginning of the younger brother, but also in that very cool, self-righteous, quite lazy sin in the older brother. And they represent as the two sons together. I suppose every worldview, every religion, every philosophy that you can ever imagine, people try to have connection with God, a relationship with God, in two ways. And it's either through one or two of the, of the older son or the younger son, either through that kind of moral conformity of the, of, of the older son, the do-gooding upright, or the younger son, and that kind of self-discovery, I'm going to go out to a place and, and do what I possibly can and blow all the money. And these are the two basic ways in which the world and people think that they can make themselves right with God, and actually make themselves right with everyone else as well. See, those who kind of are like that kind of moral conformity, the older brother, they say, I'm not going to do what I want. I will sub subject myself to a particular set of rules in my culture. And that will sort me out. It may even sort my friends out. And it may sort me out with God as well. That's a moral conformist, isn't it? And those who are kind of like going for a bit of self-discovery, they're going to say, well, let me decide what's right for me. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to hang loose a bit and I'll find my true self, all those kind of things. And that kind of thinking, both kinds of thinking, are rife within the church as well. Each says, this is the way that the world can be better, I can be better. It's the way I'm going to be happy with myself and happy with God too. And Jesus says both of those ways, represented by both sons, are wrong. They're both lost. See, if you're an older brother type, you know, kind of conforming with the kind of culture, the morals of the world, you know, then you probably divide the world into kind of two segments. Either there's good people who are in, and there's bad people, really bad people, and they're out. 
And if you're a younger brother type of person, you know, self-discovery, off I go and find my life and find my relationship with God in some whatever I want, then there's the open-minded, progressive thinking people. They're in. We like them. And then there's the bigoted, judgmental folk. And they're out. And Jesus responds to both of those within this parable and says, neither are in. Only those who are humble are in. And the proud are out. The people who, who know they are not good or open-minded, who realise they just need grace, they're the kind of people who are in. And people who think that they stand outside of the grace of God, they're out. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so distinct from all kind of religions and worldviews and so on. You know, even, it's not a religion, it's not an irreligion, as the Romans thought. It's not moralism, it's not kind of relativism or any other ism. It is something completely other and completely different. And do you see what Jesus is showing us about our sin within this parable and how radically different the Christian faith is to anything else? Is that our doorbell or something else? It's a toy, maybe there. We should stop that one somewhere. <laughs> Take the back. That's good. Idea. Think what Jesus is saying through this. Okay. <laughs> Someone get that all. He shows us through these two sons that there are two ways, aren't there? We all try to be our own saviour and our own Lord. And we try to control God and get all that he gives us, all his blessing, without having any reference to him. And one son does it, do, does it through all the bad stuff that we see, the younger son. And one does, one does it through all the good stuff that we see. But they both want the father's stuff without having the father. And that is sin. And if you think, if, if I love people, if I read my Bible, if I pray, Jesus has got to bless me. Well, you're trying to control God just like the sons are. By avoiding Jesus as your saviour and trying to avoid sin. You just really want to get what you want out of God without any reference to God himself. Tim Kelly says, says it this way. Religious people obey God to get things, and gospel people, that is Christians, obey God to get God, to resemble God, to love God, to know God, and to delight in God. What about if you're, if you're here or you know people who are like the lost young brother? Well, then your self-indulgence will bring you down, and those around you down with destructive and addictive lifestyles. If not now, sometime. If you're a lost, as the elder brother was, you may just find yourself in a rather judgmental and angry state of life. Just look at the older brother, he has so much, doesn't he? Living in that culture, living in that circumstance, but he sat moping outside of this wonderful feast. Why? Well, because He's lived such a good life and he thinks his father owes him. He's obeyed, so he's expecting the stuff. His motivation, though, is all wrong. And how can that be changed? Well, we're going to come to our last point now. Because this, uh, this older brother, he's done everything out of duty to gain and to pleasure, which makes him very judgmental. And he thinks he is superior, doesn't he, to the younger son. You see that in all of his attitudes and actions. And his motivation needs to be changed, which is why Jesus tells us so much about salvation in this uh, parable too. We're going to come to that now.
boil it down to this. What is really wrong with the world and us? You see, the two brothers in their moral conformity and that kind of self-discovery kind of way of looking at life, they don't really address the underlying problem in all of us. And we can start that voyage of self-discovery, plotting our own path to God and trying to get you know, to right all the wrongs of this world. And we can strive to live a good life to do the same, but, but both are just ways of denying the reality that deep down we're all trying to just justify ourselves before God and before the world. See, both ways, both those ways of living, the two sons, they don't answer our biggest problem. That is how we can be saved. And we find ourselves, as these two sons do, just lost in our sin. So what does Jesus tell us about salvation? How we can be saved? How we can be in that loving, committed, beautiful, eternal relationship with God in his love. Firstly, we need God to love us first. You see, who goes out to the sun? Verse 20. Who goes out to the sun? Who goes out to the sun in verse 28? Two. It's the father on both occasions. He runs with his arms open wide, ready to clothe and honour the son. He pleads with the son to come back in and feast after verse 28. That is, we need the love of the heavenly father to first come to us. He's the one who initiates the love. Notice in verse 21 and 20, uh, 20 and 21 that the kiss of father brings the sobering words of repentance. Not the other way around. The repentance of the son doesn't bring the kiss. The kiss of the Father brings the repentance. That is, God works in all of us before we've ever probably even known that he's been working in us to soften our hearts and bring us back to him. He runs to us. He embraces us. He kisses us. And then we truly repent. Even before when the younger son, in verse 17, came to his senses, that's God working. And every Christian in this room will testify to that same grace and work of God in our lives. It's very humbling, but it's also very amazing. Jesus is saying to both groups listening, you're in trouble, guys. But I have and I will love you to save you. But we also need to repent of our attitudes. The second thing we learn about salvation, the second little point in this this section the second thing we learn about salvation from Jesus is that we can be as good as we possibly can in our actions, like the Pharisees were. They were really good and upright people. But the difference between a Christian and a kind of a religious type, a moralist and so on, a Pharisee, is that a Christian will also repent of doing good things if those things are done with an inappropriate attitude. That is not giving glory to God. See, the older brother is lost in just his good, upright works, his life. He thinks that will merit him in some way before God. And Jesus hits back and shows that salvation will bring not only repentance in our actions, but in in his attitude as well, in his heart. Thirdly and lastly, we need to realise the cost of our salvation. You see, the Christian is someone who understands what it costs God to bring us into that feast with the fattened calf. And it seems free, doesn't it? And sometimes we even speak of it like that. But look at verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me 
and everything I have is yours. All that the father had left was, was due, would be the older brothers, yeah? Everything else had given away to his younger son. Everything in time belonged to him. So the fattened calf, the robe, the ring, the sandals, who bore the cost of bringing the younger son back? It was the older son. He lost out in the end. See, salvation is not free. I mean, how should the older brother have actually responded? He should have been running in front of his dad. He should have been running down the road to embrace his younger brother, saying, you're back, brilliant, let me hug you, let me kiss you, let me give you my robe, let's go back and let's celebrate, and all those kind of things. And we do have an older brother like that, who has done just that. He came from heaven to earth, and the cost wasn't just out of his wallet with a robe and with some sandals and a ring and all that kind of stuff. The cost was his life. And and as I mentioned before, there was one time in the New Testament when Jesus did not call his father, Father. And it is when he hung on a cross, when he was bearing the cost for us, what did Jesus cry out? He said, my God, not my father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that was the moment that he was not being treated as a son. Rather, that was the moment who's been treated as you deserve and as I deserve. See, Jesus paid a debt that deep down we all know that we deserve. And maybe you're a younger brother living London life to the full, and it, but it doesn't last. And maybe you're the older brother type, but your goodness will never satisfy you, all those around you, or most importantly, it will never satisfy God. You will never stop being that older brother type. If you are, it's an infectious life. You will never stop being the older brother type until you meet the true older brother. And you are melted by him. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do you need to do? What do we all need to do? To go back to Spurgeon's very, very famous words, we all need to lay our deadly doing down. Whether that is with that hot rebellion as you see in the younger brother of self-discovery or whether that's in the older brother of just that kind of moral conformity, you need to lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet and stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the, in a sense, the incompleteness of his parable, in that it doesn't point us to the sons, but it points us to the glorious Father. And Father God, we do thank you that you have loved us in a way which, even culturally now, is just totally inappropriate. You have flung your arms around us. You have kissed us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have poured out your love on us as he poured out his blood on the cross. And cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, as